you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department, just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Hey, Rick Picotta here, the May issue of uh, Risk Management Monthly 2015 coming to you. I got uh, Greg Henry on the Skype line, as usual, we have, but we have a special guest this month. I'm on with two, one of our uh, avid listeners said, hey, listen, you got to talk to this guy. He's down in Texas. We just did a case together. He's got a lot of things to say about keeping ER docs out of trouble. And so we just basically cold called Mark Calvert of Calvert and Associates down in Houston. And he was generous enough to say, sure, let's do it. So uh, Mark, we really appreciate your coming on board. My pleasure, guys. Yeah, and and Rick, uh, just to let our listeners know, we are at the end of April dictating the May issue, and it's snowing here in Michigan, so, uh, you know, all is right with the world. It's cold, it's wet, it's miserable, and uh, you guys in sunny California and Texas, you guys don't even understand this stuff. Go ahead. (laughs) No, we don't. We heard that there's a phenomenon where, where water comes out of the sky. Yes, you know, right. You called. guys wouldn't know about that. <laughs> Jerry we, Brown outlawed that. So, we, I mean, you, you can't do that. Listen, right. Mark, you're the uh, expert here. I, as I acknowledged before we started recording, neither Greg nor I are attorneys, yet we act like one on TV. I mean, we right, give, right, exactly. <laughs> we give out legal advice. We, we, you know, we're, we're on thin ice all the time. So to have a real attorney uh, with us is a treat. Now, we have ad nauseum gone through the Texas malpractice reform laws, and, and I really believed that you had to be a child molester felon to lose a case or even be accused of a case of malpractice in Texas, but, but apparently that's not the case. No, it's not the case, and we've seen more emergency medicine cases really in the last few years than ever before. And I think that some of the plaintiff's attorneys and plaintiff's experts are getting pretty creative at dancing around the wording of the statute. Basically, not to get lost too much in the weeds, but with any state that has uh, some tort reform, and I think uh, Florida may have had some, and, and certainly Texas does, there's some precise definitions that need to be met. If they are met, and that is if there's an actual emergency in the emergency room, an emergency being defined as there is a serious risk to losing life or limb if immediate action is not taken. You can see where those words can be parsed. Mm -hmm. And so we had a recent case where uh, an appellate specialist came in, helped guide the trial attorneys to reframe the case so that they said, you know, this was a serious situation. It would involve acute limb ischemia, but it wasn't technically an emergency. That is, there could have been care provided in the next 24 or 36 hours that would have been difference-making, but it didn't need to be provided right then. And the trial judge agreed and evaded our motion for summary judgment. Uh, so that's how some of the, the plaintiff's attorneys are, are recasting their case in order to avoid the willful and wanton standard, which is really hard to meet. Mm-hmm. Mark, one of the things we wanted to ask you to do is to kind of, you've been doing this for 30 years now, so boy, that's a huge amount of experience. So what we're looking for is your analysis of trends, what 
emergency physicians are getting tr into trouble for? Are there any issues that you run into with PAs and NPs in the emergency department? We're looking for in, in the, to suck your brain dry of any, any kinds of things that you can tell us to help us keep our listeners out of trouble. Yeah, Mark, if you had a, if you had a kid who was about to do their first shift in emergency medicine and you had to pull them aside and say, here, here's the five biggest screw-ups I've seen <laughs> in my life. Uh, don't do the following five things. What would they be? Well, those are those are some some good questions, and you know, it's a privilege to be able to to talk to to you and to your listeners. My motivation is to try to help doctors provide better care, and then secondarily, when the inevitable bad result happens and the lawsuit or or board action comes, that they are in a position to better defend themselves. So those are my motivations today. Uh, you know, there are a host of risks. Um, you know, it's no secret that emergency medicine doctors are in the crosshairs. Uh, they don't have a history with the patient. They've got a high percentage of patients that are coming in that are that are using them for their primary care doctor, and so some of the complaints are routine. And within those uh, herds of horses, there are the occasional zebras, and that's where the emergency medicine doctor gets bit. Um, I have noticed in 30 years, in, in just in general, that one of the things I, I will tell people is I've noticed a slippage in the quality of the support staff, uh, whether it's the front office people or the receptionist or the triage nurse or the NP or the PA in the emergency room. The quality of, of their capability seems to have lessened a bit in the last uh, uh you know, decade or so. I'm not sure why, but it exposes the emergency medicine doctor uh, to their errors as well as uh, the doctor's own errors. So that's in general, I would say that. Um, the reason the emergency medicine doctor is more at risk is because many times they are at the very front of the case. And just to briefly review, to prove a legal case, you have to prove a breach of the standard of care, but you also have to prove causation. And causation is the idea that the course and outcome would have been better or different if different action had been taken. That's, that's kind of a, a simplistic uh, outline of it. So why is the emergency medicine doctor in the crosshairs? Because they're usually at the front end of the case where a difference could have been made. Sometimes the guy on the back end, say the cardiologist who sees the patient two days later, by then, they may have the defense that, look, the, the die is cast, the horse is out of the barn. But boy, if that ER doctor had just consulted that cardiologist a day or two earlier, they would have had much more time to be able to get that catheterization done and change this man's life. So that's one of the reasons why the emergency medicine doctors are kind of in the front. Now, that's a double-edged sword. That's the bad side of the sword. The good side of the sword, I think, is that emergency medicine doctors can awfully, uh, often take the position that the disease has not manifested itself yet. And we can, we can make some hay with, with that principle and we can show some things that are happening that, that make the emergency medicine doctor more defensible because it's so early in the disease process. But with that as kind of a general umbrella, let me just bullet point some areas. And we've talked a little bit about this off the record, but you know, one of the patterns of problems that, that I've seen and what I would advise a, a, a son of, or a daughter of mine going into emergency medicine is to guard the records. Uh, the record is going to probably be the most uh, 
persuasive and passionate testimony that will be given. You kind of live or die with the records. And so those entries, I know you don't have all the time in the world, and I agree with taking care of the patient versus the paper. It is important to document on the paper uh, your plausible explanation for your care and your thought process. Uh, so cryptic, uh, tight notes. It doesn't have to be an epistle, but mentioning the high spots, um, outlining your thought process, uh, moving through a differential, why you didn't think that this was heart, uh, or, or why you didn't follow through that it was heart versus GERD, or why you thought that this was a neuropathy instead of acute limb ischemia, or why you thought that this was just a reaction to medicine instead of a brewing stroke. Because when the stroke happens, the jury's going to look to you and say, what was your thought process? Why did you not think worst first? That's the plaintiff's attorney's mantra. They love that kind of gimmicky language. And so the ER doc is going to have to be able to show with their records that the thought process was um, moving through with the best interest of the patient in mind. So what are some of the mistakes I see? Well, if we have the old T-sheets, um, some of those records are, are inaccurate, you know, checking that the pulses are equal when, uh, when one leg has no detectable pulses and the nurse's note says that. So inaccuracies in the records and having to explain that, it shows a sloppiness. You want to be accurate on those things and not just race through them, putting checks in various locations. Another common mistake is just the skimpy or incomplete record. Uh, that is uh, hard to defend later uh, when it's a serious matter. As, and, I've, uh, as I've had to work sure. as an expert on these things, Mark, there's no way a checkbox is the same as, as a narrative. Um, uh, sometimes two or three sentences. Any electronic medical record system that doesn't have a dictating mode is a mistake in my mind because lots of things can be checked off. Have you had measles? Haven't you had measles? Did you ever have your appendix out 20 years ago? That's checkbox stuff. But the story of that patient, a complex story about a chest pain or this, that, another thing, a, a, a truly dictated record which 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 tells a story is what you need to have. Uh, you can't get that from a checkbox. I Mark, agree with you. Mark, could I ask you about more specifically, have you had any interactions with uh, the electronic medical record in terms of pros or cons uh, in dealing with it? I know it, when it gets printed out, it's usually about 30 or 40 pages. But <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Greg and I have some some feelings about the electronic medical record um, that are, but we have not been able to stop its progress, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that the, the motivations were pure. I think it was to uh, make things easier and make things more thorough. But it's rife with problems, and we've seen a lot of issues. Uh, as I mentioned off the record, in Texas, we've seen a spike in board investigations. And we do a lot of that work before the Texas Medical Board. And several of those things have related to uh, EMRs, uh, information that somehow got deleted, uh, duplicative information, these auto-populated fields where, you know, you put in a, a temperature of 100.3 and it automatically puts in signs of infection and 
you know, and then there's a failure to explain that. I mean, I think that it was intended to be a blessing. I think that it has boomeranged somewhat and become a curse in some situations. And so I think the EMRs uh, pose some risks. But I agree with Greg, you know, the bottom line, really, I think juries are going to focus in on what is that narrative note by the doctor? What is that core paragraph of what he thinks is going on and what he intends to do to help the patient? Uh, and and whether that's in a T-sheet note or whether that's in an EMR, that is what is important. It doesn't have to be an epistle. It doesn't have to be, you know, a thousand words. But 25 really tight, well-written words where you can show the jury, I was thinking about serious things and I was able to rule them out. She had the headache, but she told me that this was very similar to what she had experienced a year before taking the same medicine. Mm -hmm. I mean, that needs to be noted. It's hard for him to say that later on based on memory if he hasn't noted it. So the jury wants to see him wrestle with ruling out things that are potentially very, um, you know, serious for the patient. Um, But, you know, that moves us into another category, and that's just this idea of of communication. Uh, I... I think that that's a big breakdown that emergency medicine doctors make, and it's across the the, the waterfront. Uh, inadequacies in communicating with the patients, inadequacies in communication with staff, um, breakdowns in communication with consultants. Uh, a few examples, you know, if this patient comes in and they say that they have a, a doctor in the area, I don't see any downside to calling that doctor and getting them involved. Putting the name, the date, the time of the call, and the basic substance, that is uh, important. Uh, that, that is something that can rescue the ER doc later on. So communicating to that, to that doctor, it takes a few minutes, but it can be pivotal. Um, you know, the other thing is when there's a question about consulting with a specialist, uh, the case that I talked to Dr. Matu about involved an interventional cardiologist who was, mm-hmm. who was called. Uh, unfortunately, the doctor did not clearly note who he spoke to. There was some confusion on the names. In a, in a case of a possible STEMI, time is of the essence. Uh, so note that clearly when you talk to the interventional cardiologist. Yeah, the issue of getting a specialist to see patients has become more and more of a challenge, uh, particularly in certain fields. But of all the fields, cardiology, most hospitals are really getting their act together in cardiology because most hospitals want to do some interventional kinds of things, and the clock is running. <laughs> and and it's, well paid, it's well paid for, Rick. I mean that's that's the point. Cardiology is one of those things that if you get to, if you get to take the patient to the cath lab, it's it's great for everybody. So it, that's not just an opinion that they're giving on the phone. That's real dollars coming down the pike. Although they may be at smaller hospitals where they don't have these facilities, but there are more and hot more hospitals that want to be called STEMI centers, right? And, and uh, require that there be a cardiologist. On, on call and uh, coming in, so um, that for you know for us here in Los Angeles, cardiology is probably the least of the problems where uh, you're involved with a um, yeah. specialist. Uh, certainly, you know, getting an ENT doctor here is that's a challenge in in Los yeah. Angeles. 
I'm not quite sure why, because uh, there aren't that many ENT emergencies. And when you when you need one, an ENT doctor, you need one. You got this nosebleed that won't stop, kind of thing. You know? Yeah, it kind of uh, depends on the area of the country as to to what the challenge is. But I think I think the overarching principle is the same, and that is if that emergency medicine doctor thinks there's a bona fide reason to reach out to a, a consultant, he should do so. He should do so timely, and he should note that conversation in a way that is fair, but also that protects him. Mm-hmm. Look, I reached out to this consultant, and whether or not they're reluctant to come in, I told them I think they needed to come in. You know, I have a, another example. It's not a cardiology case. It's it's a, a guy that came in with a, with a hernia, and it was you know probably ten thirty eleven at night. Uh, there were a couple of lab values that were off, but the guy was twenty four, otherwise appeared healthy. The ER doc calls the general surgeon and says, "I have a patient with a with a hernia. He's going to need surgical repair." But the note wasn't clear. And the general surgeon testified that he was told that he could come in the next morning. By the time he came in the next morning, the patient was almost dead and did eventually die of sepsis. That was a strangulated hernia, and there were were issues there. The emergency medicine doctor could have protected himself so much more by simply noting, uh, consulted with general surgeon so-and-so at such-and-such a time, uh, related to him uh, condition of patient and uh, asked him to come and see the patient this evening. And that would have been a note that would have saved him instead of something that was very, very cursory and open to dispute later, which the general surgeon did dispute because guess what? He was a defendant in the same case. And he didn't want to say that the, the doctor had told him to come in because he didn't come in. Yep. But that note would have broken the tie. So the communication, particularly in the records, is pivotal and it's a pattern of ongoing trouble for emergency yeah, room everybody wants to sail the ship until the storm hits <laughs> and then all of a sudden the rats <laughs> head downstairs and i can't tell you the number of times uh, we've i've heard the strangest comments in court out of consultants who uh said oh if he'd only told me this or that i'd have been right in immediately you yeah. liar you're a, you're an out and out <laughs> liar if you lied anymore, we'd have to call you counselor. And, and uh, it's just a, an insulting, terrible thing when they turn on the emergency doc. Um, I, I have a case that came in this week which had that exact same scenario about a kid with, with, a, uh, with a pain in a testicle. Now, hello, child, pain in testicle. There can only be one diagnosis to an emergency doctor, <laughs> and this had to do, they had to do with what he told the the urologist as to when he had to come in. Now, there's no way in hell that the ER doc didn't didn't say, "Look, I think I've got a kid who's got got a twisted testicle here. You got to come in. This is torsion, uh, and you can't believe the lies." That this yep. man told yep. on the stand is unbelievable. Well, when people are cornered, you know, they remember things <laughs> differently, even if they're not going to outright lie. And, and, of course, many of them do choose to outright lie. But if the note is fuzzy or absent, it gives them an escape hatch. And I, I'd like to just give a heads up to the emergency doctors listening uh, get in the habit of being a good note writer, and it will help you later on. And that kind of moves into another area of pattern that I see, and that is uh, just this idea of not spending enough time and also what I'll call a bedside manner issue. 
Uh, it's been around since the beginning of time. You guys know that. And some doctors are better than other at being able to bond with patients, particularly challenging patients. But when things don't go well, uh, families remember comments and they remember amounts of time spent. Um, I understand that in a busy ED, you can't just be there, you know, the whole time. Uh, you can't give them maybe the, all the time that you would like to give them. But give them the impression that you are uh, with an upbeat personality, a friendly personality, uh, inquiring of them, letting them know that you're working hard to figure out what's going on, even if you're there just for a few minutes. Uh, let them know that you have a team of people helping you and that this is a team approach. Um, reassure them. Uh, the, the doctor who comes in for a couple of minutes doesn't say much. They're not going to be remembered well. And so when it goes south, that bedside manner is recalled, and it might tip them to pursuing an attorney, whereas the friendly, upbeat, trying hard doctor, uh, that might nudge them to not seeking an attorney. One, one case that comes to mind was an older guy that had fallen. He went into the emergency room. He was being treated by a young guy, very capable emergency medicine doctor, but what did the guy say to the family, to the daughter? In the course of treating this older gentleman, he remarked, maybe it's time for this guy to be in a nursing home. And I'll tell you what, that pissed the family off big time. And they ultimately sued. And that was something that they cited. They said, we could tell this guy didn't care about our dad. And he didn't care about us either. Uh, so that was a bad thing to say, even though he was trying to be helpful. It's just like telling the patient they need to lose weight. Be careful how that's phrased, because that's the only thing they're going to remember. We have a phrase in uh, medicine, you want to be the dumb, dedicated, documenting doctor. And <laughs> dumb in the smart sense, in that uh, you, um, you really know what you're doing, but you're making it clear that as you said, I'm going to. The team's going to work together. We're uh, we're not quite sure what's going on with Dad yet, but we're going to uh, vigorously uh, vigorously uh, go after this. Uh, dedicated. Uh, I'm your agent. I'm here to help. Those kinds of things. These are acquired skills. If physicians don't have them, they need to. They need to generate them because it's part of the job of being an emergency physician, whether you like it or not. It's not about just making the diagnosis, initiating the treatment. You want happy customers for a variety of reasons. I'm uh, on the local hospital foundation, and we believe that patients going into the back door who have a positive experience are potentially those who down the road may become donors to the hospital, friends of the hospital. Uh, but So it's really important that these people, particularly in areas where there's, you know, um, a sense of urgency, a sense of um, emergency, that those experiences are going to be more imprinted than had they gone for in for a gallbladder operation that was electively scheduled. And the third thing is that in the uh, dedicated documenting, documenting is basically a skill. It is an acquired acquired skill that physicians need to learn, and it's really kind of surprising that it's not emphasized more in our residency training. Uh, because if you don't get it there, it's a hard. It's kind of hard to learn it on the job. You really need to understand what you're doing, and I do think it's part of the training of a physician to to be able to acquire these non-medical skills. By the way, you can pass on information and make the same statements in a different way. Your case about the older gentleman who fell 
a reasonable question to the family would be in in the correct tone of voice to say, do you feel that that grandpa is safe in his current environment? Is there anything we can do, do you think, as the family to make him safer? Now, that's a much different question than, you know, does he need to be put in a home? And because what it does is it turns it back on them and says, what's my role here in taking care of grandpa? And I, and I think that to a very great degree, it's how we phrase it. I mean, you're, you're putting across the exact same information. Uh, you're getting the same thing, but you're doing it in such a way that it, it looks for all the world that your only concern is grandpa here, not, uh, not something else. You're exactly right. It's, uh, you know, the way that it's worded, the presentation can soften the same information. And, you know, we have a bit of a mantra in with the doctors we represent. We say you have to show two things. There's two pillars. The first one is you have to show that you're caring. And this is both in treatment and then later in the lawsuit. Because you may have, be, have to show the jury that you're caring. But on the front end with treatment, you have to show every patient, patient that you care about them. Even if inside you don't or you don't that much. But there's an old adage, fake it till you make it. Right. They have to perceive that you are caring about them. And people don't want to be condescended to and they don't want to be disrespected. And so when a young buck ER doc, no matter how good he is, makes a family who actually was a professional family, the daughter who was offended was an attorney. And when he makes her feel disrespected that they're not taking proper care of dad by saying he should be in a nursing home. The way you worded it, Greg, was just right. You know, let compliment them. Boy, he's he's at an age, I'm 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 impressed that he can live on his own. But you know, eventually we all start to kind of deteriorate. And so um, I don't know if this might be a sign that perhaps he needs maybe more care, more people in the home, M- might be something to consider. I mean, just softening it with words, complimenting them that they've done a good job, but making the same point. And the other pillar is they have to show competence. You have to show caring and you have to show competence. If you have that double, you know, that two-headed monster, it's going to help you not only with patients, but later with a jury. Never examine a patient until the family is in the room. Let them see the show. They yes. paid for the magic show. Yep. And you never examine a kid until mother's there. If she's out uh, registering the kid and they brought him back, you know, putting him in a room, wait till mother's there to watch the event because she doesn't want to hear how he doesn't need a CT scan of his head yes. until, until she's seen you do that examination which says he doesn't need a CT scan of his head. Excellent <laughs> advice. And, and yeah. as the defense counsel, I like that approach. It's more, it's involving loved ones, and, and that's how families work. Brief, brief recent experience, uh, my sister just went to a doctor yesterday. I referred her to a very good gastroenterologist in Houston, and she called and was ecstatic. Why? Because he was kind to her. He didn't, he didn't make any negative jibes about her weight. He went over the lab values and was encouraging. He mapped out a plan for her. She was ecstatic. And even if something turned out to be serious, she knows that he's in her foxhole. I think if emergency medicine doctors can give them the impression, hey, I'm your fighter pilot. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and this may be a rocky battle, but I'm with you and I'm going to do everything I can to help you. If they have that feeling, they're much less likely to go after them later. And they'll be very encouraged and maybe their outcome will be influenced by that. Mark, while we've got you, um, Rick and I have, have had this feeling for a long time that this uh, it's much better to go to court than go to one of these state medical boards <laughs> to have your <laughs> license reviewed. Um, uh, having, having been through this, would you advise that an emergency physician get separate counsel uh, for going to one of these boards? Separate counsel from their counsel representing them in a lawsuit? Yeah, well, for well, for example, our medical malpractice insurance company would go with you under rights of reservation mm-hmm. to a one of these uh, state board things, and and would serve as the uh, counsel. Some people wanted to hire their own separate attorney. What do you what do you think is best protection at this point in time? Well, you know, it's a good question. Um, I. I think it all boils down to what is the skill level of the attorney that's being assigned by the insurance company. Uh, We do it at a very high level. We often represent the doctor both in the lawsuit and before the board. That's very convenient for the doctor because we have the momentum and the knowledge because we're representing him in the other case. It's pretty common for plaintiff's attorneys to actually encourage their client to make the complaint with the board because they want a, an order that is public right. that disciplines the doctor that they then try to use in the underlying lawsuit. So it's very devious. Uh, having the same lawyer can help. Um, but if there's any doubts, then I think seeking out a you know a, a private hire is, is not a bad idea at all. I've had many doctors come to me and say, I want you to advise me on the side. I want you to kind of grade the papers of the counsel that's been assigned to me and help make sure that I'm protected. And I'll do that. I'll do that even just confidentially with the doctor. And he just pays me out of his own pocket. And and he never informs uh, the insurance company or his uh, attorney that I'm actually involved. I've done that before. Um, You know, the bottom line is being able to effectively present to the medical board but warning to all doctors, uh, you can kind of see what's coming, but I, I don't know of a state that has a medical board that is apolitical. There's envy, there's pride, there's a desire to have heads on the wall, and it can be an ugly arena, a kind of a Soviet Union type of uh, inquisition. Uh, that's why actually as stressful as it is for doctors, being in front of a jury is a little bit refreshing because there's a blank slate there. There's a kind of the, a lack of p- politics, if you will, a lack of pride and envy, and a desire to just do what's right. You you sometimes have a better shot with just the rank-and-file citizens than you do with your own peers on the medical board, which is a sad commentary. You know, having having done uh, cases in a lot of states, uh, I'm just (laughs) amazed at how the exclusionary rules um, vary state-to-state and even uh, courtroom-to-courtroom within the same state. You get judges who will allow uh, entries, you know, uh, to be presented to the jury, i.e., he was disciplined by his own hospital, where some will not allow that. I've yeah, seen them. Yeah. I've seen some places where the where the they're allowed to say he was sued four more times in the past. Oh, some wow. places would not allow that in. Yeah. It's it's interesting how 
much power a judge or a particular region has. See, we'd like to think that uh, justice is somehow homogenized across the country. It's not. The judge you get and what his feelings are can make a huge difference as to what is excluded or included in information to the jury. You're spot on. And in fact, that's the thing that that dismayed me the most when I got out of law school was just uh, that the judges were not more involved, that they were not more (laughs) interested in seeing uh, some kind of justice occur that uh, many of them are interested in protecting their positions. Now, that said, there's there's some great ones. It's just like any profession. There's great doctors. There's not so great doctors. Same with judges, same with lawyers, same with cops. For the doctor, you know, if you get a good judge, he's going to keep out that kind of stuff. If you don't, then, you know, Katie, bar the door. Because the jury may well judge you on the four prior similar instances you had versus the one at, at issue. Well, I've got a case going this week, and it has to do with an emergency doc who was treated in the past for depression Mm. and also went through the 12-step program for his alcoholism. And are we going to be able to keep that out in in the defense posture? And the judge, who was a former plaintiff's attorney, Mm. basically is going to let that in, I think. And it's it's going to be um, an ugly situation for the doctor that the jury has to hear. You you know, I would think an exclusionary rule would keep that out. But these guys have more leeway than you can ever imagine. They do. Um, I will say this. Number one, I think when you have good people on a jury, if the defense attorney can methodically work through that this is unfair and that we've all made mistakes and it has nothing to do with the care and treatment of this patient. And the plaintiff's attorney is trying to capitalize on a a human uh, crisis or sadness to their monetary benefit. I think it can backfire with the jury. And the other protective thing is, if a judge does something obvious like that, and Greg, I think that's obviously an error, there's appellate courts that can sometimes correct it. The sad thing is, is that it's those types of pieces of leverage that plaintiff's attorneys often use to bludgeon the, the defendant into settling. Right. Uh, because it doesn't have anything to do with the care that was provided, <laughs> but it has to do with the bad press and just the misery of having to relive their own personal you know, addiction or whatever it was they went through. Well, this is exactly what's happening in this case. Because they said, you know, for, for $450,000, your children will not suffer the embarrassment <sighs> of school. Oh, my gosh. Of, of knowing that their father was treated for alcoholism and depression. Um, uh, I and, mean, that's, and, <laughs> that's loathsome, isn't it? The first casualty of war is truth. And, Absolutely. And so these, these folks feel that the end justifies the means. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I continue to fight for docs, even though uh, my plaintiff's attorney buddies uh, are, are driving Lamborghinis and I'm driving a Ford. <laughs> <laughs> Rick, can I ask him about two recent court decisions? Um, These these come up all the time. There was a a Minnesota Supreme Court decision which had to do with medical staff bylaws. And I'd like your take on this. A hospital, and it was um, Avira Marshall Regional Medical Center, was sold to another owner. The new owners presented the medical staff with a new set of bylaws. The medical staff took 
this the ownership to uh, trial uh, to court and said you can't do this. Well, it finally wended its way to the Minnesota Supreme Court, and they basically decided that the medical staff bylaws were a contract, an enforceable contract between the physicians and the hospital, and that they couldn't just present them a series of bylaws. It needed to be worked on between the two entities. Do you have any comments on that? Because, I mean, I think emergency docs pretty much ignore the bylaws of a hospital. I don't know. I don't know. Rick might know if there's anybody who's actually read their hospital bylaws. <laughs> but I, I, I don't think very few, I think very few emergency docs ever, ever do that. But it was an interesting take that this is a contract mm-hmm. and they can't just shove these things down your throat. That is interesting. Um, you know, I have had several cases where the plaintiff's attorneys are able to obtain the bylaws and they'll <laughs> beat the they'll beat the doctor up with it in deposition uh, because they're not familiar with it. And it usually has flowery language in there about protecting patients at all costs and things that sometimes can be taken out of context. That is an interesting ruling uh, uh, that the Minnesota Supreme Court decided that it was a contract between the doctors and the hospital. I'm with you in in the sense that I I think that there should be some kind of uniform standards. The doctors definitely should be aware uh, of the bylaws, and and the defense lawyer needs to make sure that that doctor uh, has read them before they uh, present for a deposition. But I can can see the reasoning to say that, that it's a contract. It's just... It's interesting because it's almost in the eye of the beholder and a lot of changes can occur in in a contractual situation. So I could also see some of the downsides to that. Well, you know, my experience is that the um, medical staff and the hospital are two distinct entities. And the medical staff in many hospitals has its own counsel. It basically has its own rules in terms of peer review. How do you get on the staff? And uh, uh, what happens if uh, this or that uh, goes down? and that these are written by the medical staff, adhered to by the medical staff, voted on by the medical staff. When you become a member of the medical staff, you have to assert that you have read the bylaws, and every two or three years when you become re-credentialed, you again have to assert that you're familiar with the bylaws, but that the separation of church and state here is <laughs> needs to be taken into consideration because the medical staff is a unique entity, and it is not... Uh, owned by the hospital. It is not run by the hospital. And in Mm -hmm. fact, there may be times when the medical staff in the hospital are at odds over uh, certain procedures or um, the like. Uh, Let me give you the counter. Let me give you the counter to that, Rick. And and I've I've had to listen to this multiple times when the hospital says, okay, medical staff, do you have your own insurance policy? And the reason they ask that question is uh, they are viewed as functioning. You know, the hospital is the respondeat superior here. They're they're the boss, uh, and they run a lot of programs there. When the lawsuit comes, the hospital gets sued. That's why when when the doctor does something, which or the medical staff has a different view of it than the hospital, who's responsible when when the judgment comes down? And I, I think we, we all know people on the, who have been protected by the medical staff who, quite frankly, shouldn't be practicing anymore. <laughs> and and uh, they've, they've outlived their, their, medical, their medical usefulness. 
and somebody's got to take an action. Well, that process of peer Good review point. basically uh, can result in some um, <clears throat> looking the other way because Mr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so is a big admitter kind of thing. And yes, he right. does come in drunk every once in a while. And uh, I think the medical staff has an obligation to do this peer review and that that obligation can be challenged as medical staff. You didn't take action uh, against this known alcoholic physician. And as a result, this this happened. And so I do think that the medical staffs need their own representation. They all have errors and omissions insurance for sure. And whether they have, um, you know, insurance to protect them from not acting as their bylaws state, uh, I'm not quite sure about that. But I think that I view these as two separate entities. And I think that there are many, many examples where the medical staff in the hospital did not agree about certain kinds of things and went after each other. So I, yeah. it's, I, it is separation of church and state. The hospital's job is to provide the environment and staff and tools and equipment and all of those, those other things for the care of patients. But the doctors are the ones who write the orders, do the surgery, and uh, um, are, not owned or, or in many, are not owned or directed by the hospital. Well, let Excellent me, uh, points. Let, let me give you uh, the case then that brings this up, and that is a, a, a recent decision uh, in the state of Washington. It was Taylor versus Intuitive. Intuitive is the, is the company that makes the Da Vinci robot. Now, some a surgeon is doing his first case without supervision or after his supervisory time is up. He does it on an uh, amazingly obese patient, and there are complications. There's a debate in the, in the underlying case as to whether the da Vinci device should have been used in this case. In any event, the plaintiff, Taylor, sues the doctor, the hospital, and the maker of the device, saying, you didn't, you didn't inform them correctly or train them correctly. Now... The hospital and the doctor settle out. So the only people left in the case are intuitive and the plaintiff. These are the, and, and you got to remember, all across the Western world, the da Vinci device is now being used. This was a big case because you could see every plaintiff's attorney was licking their lips over <laughs> this one. And, and what actually happened was the, the jury sided with intuitive and said mm. – uh, they provided the device. They provided the manual. It wasn't up to them to decide which cases it was used on, what the learning curve was, what the supervisory rules were for the hospital. And so basically it's turned back around. It protected the maker of the device, but it put more responsibility back on the hospital and the medical staff for this supervi supervis supervisory role in making sure somebody can use the device. Now, the reason I bring this up on an emergency medicine risk management is, does that apply to us in the emergency department? The utilization of new intubating devices, you know, the screen, this, that, or another thing? Does it apply to our PAs? How many cases should they have seen of X, Y, or Z without supervision? until they function without supervision. I think this is an interesting uh, 
uh, area and one which particularly as we use more physician um, or, or PAs and NPs is going to become a bigger issue, I think, at the time of trial. Yeah, that's a fascinating case. And if I was the defense attorney for Intuitive, I would have simply stood up and said, "We do not practice medicine," uh, and and that's the the call of the of the you know flesh and blood that are licensed to make those decisions. And I think that that gets us back to a hallmark principle of medicine, and that is the duty of the emergency medicine doctor, whether he's using new equipment uh, or new technology is to act reasonably. That's the key word that we emphasize all the time. So if that uh, nurse practitioner or is not experienced or, or doesn't know how to use it or doesn't know how to use it right, what obligations does the emergency medicine doctor have? He has the duty to act reasonably. If he's not supervising that nurse practitioner, then the hospital needed to supervise. All the defense will rotate around what do we do to act reasonably? Um, does that mean you know, four or five uh, practice cases or, or mentored cases, uh, then, then fine. Uh, but we want to be able to show the jury that, that reasonable steps were taken to provide reasonable care. Yeah, I, I just looked at our own hospital's uh, rules about the da Vinci uh, robot. And uh, they're now saying that the learning curve uh, for most procedures is somewhere between 90 and 120 procedures. Wow. Uh, and, and what they've basically said is, if you're not going to go through this learning curve, doctor, surgeon who's 65, maybe you should cut that out of your, you know, stop asking for that on the privilege form because yep. yeah. we're not, we're not going to support it. Although those uh, decisions regarding, um, how many cases need to be done to be considered to be, uh, competent to do, uh, these procedures on their own are usually determined by, uh, as an example, the surgery committee. This, that's the obligation of the surgery committee to determine that. It's not the hospital's obligation to determine that. And you have to wonder sometimes whether, because all the members of the surgery committee are in fact competing with each other, that uh, uh, barriers to the practice of the use of the da Vinci machine, as an example, is set up by unduly putting in... Um, numbers of cases that have to be supervised before you can do it on your own. So there's all kinds of intrigues that may go on when you come to credentialing physicians to do something with new, new technology. It's Mark, interesting and, and to note my, that, I'm sorry. No, it's interesting to note that the American College of Surgeons may have a different requirement for, for use of the machine in the lower abdomen than, than OBGYN, the, the, um, their national organization. In fact, they do. They have twice as many procedures as the OBGYN people do. Uh, why is that exactly? I'm not sure. But no hospital's surgical committee is going is to vary very much from what the national organization is suggesting as a supervisory time frame for these uh, cases. And obviously, advantage then goes to the younger doctors who are just getting out of residency where they've grown up with the machine. I mean, that's, that's all they've known uh, is the use of the robot. Mark, we've got about 20 minutes left. Uh, sure. <clears throat> we, we want, are there other things on your list that we, we should go through? Well, I, I can race through them. Uh, you know, an, an ongoing pattern of problems for emergency doctors is 
the quick discharge uh, and and giving the jury uh, later on the impression that there's some type of they're they're like a hockey goalie trying to keep everybody out. Uh, you know, the quick discharge, the under testing. Uh, one of the things that I, I know doctors consider, but they have to phrase it right. If, if there's indications for a test, uh, you know, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. It doesn't matter the cost in the jury's mind. And so if the guy is hanging on whether or not he should do a CT scan, but he's worried about the cost, that does not play well later on when a CT scan would have averted the nuclear disaster for the patient. So it really has to boil down to medical indications and not make the decision based on resources, or if that is a factor, that it be not prominently emphasized, uh, either in the chart or, or certainly when testifying. Uh, so uh, don't play, don't give the plaintiff's attorney the opportunity to play the resources or money card, because that's a hard one for the doctor to win. Um, a realize, other- Mark, yeah. Mark, realize you're talking to two of the most conservative, cheapest doctors in the country. We order nothing on anybody. But I would agree with you that the phrase that makes patients mad is the term cost-benefit analysis. What it should be is risk-benefit analysis because I truly don't care what the cost, the financial cost of the test is because that's only one element of risk. If you're doing a CT scan on a seven-year-old's head who doesn't need it, there is a cost there in there cancer is. 30 years down the road. Yes. And so and yes. so I think I think we have to be careful but you're right. Cost is not a term that any patient wants to hear. It's risk analysis, risk yeah. benefit, not cost benefit. And and I like to go back to the to the foundation principle of whether or not it's indicated. You can do a ton of tests but if they're not indicated, they're not indicated and you shouldn't pursue them. I really like that foundation to be more based on medicine. So if the seven-year-old, to use your example, ends up having some type of weird aneurysm or it ends up being some kind of meningitis or there's some kind of horrific thing that happens, the doctor wants to be able to explain in a plausible way why he didn't pursue the CT scan that doesn't include the well, there was a 20% chance I would find something because 20% chance is Russian roulette. And, and juries do not want us to play Russian roulette with other people's lives. They, I want our emergency medicine doctors to appreciate this fact. The people who will be on the jury of their case are also the people who go to emergency rooms. And they may not expect rabbits out of hats, but they do expect a reasonable concern about that patient's condition, especially if a bad outcome happens with the child, uh, with something that may have been detected. I don't think they require that there had been testing to detect it, but they want to see the thought process on paper that it was reasonably ruled out. Uh, Because if it wasn't, and if that good plaintiff's attorney can say, look, this seven-year-old is now a vegetable because he wanted to save money or because it was late in the shift and he didn't want a bunch of time to be taken or some other frivolous reason, then we really are exposing our docs to some risk. Okay, let me just mention a couple of other things. 
We talked about when in doubt, you know, pursue the consultant. Uh, your discharge instructions can be a big friend to you. And I, I, the form instructions are fine, but really those form instructions need to say if symptoms continue or if you have any concerns, please return to the emergency room. I don't like the if symptoms worsen return. I, I want to put some responsibility on that patient. And if these symptoms continue, come back. They probably won't but at least the note helps you. And I see no downside to almost always saying, follow up on this with your primary care doctor the next business day. I wouldn't put seven to 10 days. I wouldn't put two to three days. Have them follow up. Have them make the call the next business day because that then transfers the baton to another healthcare provider and there's no delays and you have kind of done what you can do to intercept something. Finally, Another recurring problem we see, if this, if the patient is a baby or a child, I would slow down and take some special time because juries don't like it when kids get hurt. Uh, when it's midnight and they've brought the baby in with a fever, that should be an alarm bell to most emergency medicine doctors. That baby should be discharged very reluctantly and only after that record looks pretty good that you've ruled some things out. I know that it's common, but those baby cases are hard to defend when things go awry. So that's my list. Terrific. Mark, uh, do you have any issues or had issues with regards to PAs and nurse practitioners in the ED? We have had some, uh, you know, mainly, as I mentioned earlier, I've noticed a deterioration in the quality of staff. I think the emergency medicine doctor needs to be very careful. Um, One area, for example, is when the notes of of the nurse practitioner are more serious or more detailed than the doctor's notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if there's, I'm always assuming there's going to be a bad outcome. That's when I get involved. It looks bad when the staff's notes are more ominous than the doctor's notes. And it turns out that the staff was right, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. uh, so w- sometimes the, the doctor is correct. <clears throat> the doctor was correct. But what he's got to do is acknowledge that he's reviewed those notes, you know, have noted uh, findings of MP, have talked to her and also reevaluated a patient and patient reassures that there's no active chest pain right now. Something that kind of nips it in the bud yes. so that it, it, it doesn't look like the doctor just didn't look at it. And he's so cursorily involved with this patient that he's not even getting what the nurse or the nurse practitioner got. Um, but the nurse practitioner, they tend to be more ominous in their notes. There can be issues there. There can be issues on miscommunication, as we talked earlier. Uh, them saying something to the patient where the doctor doesn't hear it, and that's what the doctor or that's what the patient remembers in their deposition. You know, the nurse practitioner told me that I was probably having a heart attack, but the doctor said there was nothing to worry about. You know, those are the types of conflicting pieces of information that 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 drive us crazy. It makes it I, hard. I think we've said on this show many times that the chart should tell one story. Yes. Whether it's the correct one or the incorrect one, <laughs> there ought to be one story, not two stories. Well, it should be and, consistent. Uh, well, it's amazing you mentioned that because uh, sitting on the desk over here as a case came in this week, it's a third visit on an 18-month-old, th- three mm. visits in 24 hours, uh-huh. and the nurse records the child as looking listless. Oh, no. And s- sleepy and listless. And, and whenever you say that on a febrile kid case 
that's meningitis or encephalitis till proven otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. The, the doctor seemed to, there's no evidence that he ever saw that nursing note. Yeah. This is the sort of thing which I have nightmares about, you know, because they call and say, well, you're going to defend us, aren't you? And I said, only if we plead insanity, because I said, you, you cannot take a third visit on a kid who's febrile, who's already been started on antibiotics and the nurse says he's listless and not work him up for a fever. You can't it, do it. It violates our two pillars. It shows a lack of caring and it shows a lack of competence. And right. it makes it hard to defend that, especially, again, the magic you know, of, of being a little kid. Juries tend to want to stand up for little kids. So, uh, you know, I have four kids. I have grandkids. I, I really want the best effort of the doctor. If something happens, okay, something happens. But I want the best effort of that doctor. I want attention. I want respect. I want them to try as if this is their family member. I think that's what people expect now. Whether or not that's reasonable, if we're really trying to encourage better care and also to have these doctors protect themselves, I would say treat them the way you would want to be treated. You know, I think that's called the golden rule, and I think that's the best defense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mark, do you have any other kinds of um, <clears throat> words of wisdom before we get into uh, a few letters? I think I've probably worn people out with my voice. So I those those are some of the big nuggets I could mention. I I it's such an honor for me. I just want to say that it's such an honor for me to defend the greatest profession, which I think is healthcare and doctors in particular. You know, you just emergency. you just heard him, Rick. You heard him. <laughs> Check for your wallet. <laughs> a, a, an attorney just was nice to us. I, I've uh, mine's still in my pocket. We're okay. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's it's such a joy, really, um, because I know how hard most doctors work, and uh, I like defending them. I can defend the imperfect chart. I, I, I want those doctors to understand, though, that they have to get in the habit of showing caring, showing competence, communicating clearly, noting those communications. You can cut corners and you can dodge some of these things for a while, but then, then the, you know, the three cross skull and crossbones come up and you've got a litigious patient, a bad outcome, and it's a perfect storm for, for a, a negative experience. You're going to want your chart to, to be looking good. And once that happens, frankly, uh, that's, you know, how we got Dr. Matu. He's a nuclear bomb expert and, and you've got to secure great experts and you've got to go to the literature and see what exists there that can back you up because then it's going to be a dogfight. Yeah, if you've got a cardiology case, you certainly want I'm all on your side, that's for sure. Yeah, he's the guy. We have a couple of letters, a lot of these cases. I went through and cleaned up a bunch of these, um, these but let's, let's try to do one or two uh, at least. And I think okay. that we'll try to find the ones that are probably most interesting. The first one I have here actually is from a fellow by the name of Tim O'Connor. He's a new listener, and I wanted to welcome him aboard. He'd be interested in the documentation of shared decision-making. Mark, shared decision-making is becoming a, a new theme now in medicine where we basically provide options. And this is primarily generated from primary care where we say in shared decision-making, well, listen, you want to take this statin for the rest of your life here are the side effects. Here's what we think will occur. And as an example, 
200 people would have to take this pill for five years to prevent one heart attack. Now, if you understand that, you can help decide whether you want to take this pill or not. It's been brought into emergency medicine as well to have shared decision-making so that patients really get to have some autonomy in driving their care. But in the emergency departments, it's a little bit more touchy-pitchy because we're talking about things like CTs, scans, and pulmonary angiograms, and things that uh, are complex and are more urgent the uh, patients with and don't relate to the fact that, well, you have to take this pill for five years. This is happening right right now and then. But there is this movement as, so that, as an example, we have the opportunity to um, talk about, well, do you want staples or stitches or we can glue it? You know, here's here are the options and you help us decide what you would like. So he wants to know how to present this in the chart in the most positive light that he's involved the patient in the decisions about uh, their care. Yeah, that uh, is uh, a very pertinent question, cutting edge, if you will. As we talked earlier, and as, as Greg rightly pointed out, I think that the, the note itself is key, taking the time to, to enter it. If, if I was advising him specifically, I would say to sit down with the patient, reasonably outline the options, and underscoring the risks of each, and maybe ranking those options, and then putting it in the chart essentially that way. You don't have a court reporter taking it down, I understand that, but I would say, let's say it's the, uh, the stitches versus staples versus glue option. I would say something like, sat down with patient and went over options of care, including staples, stitches, and glue, and also referral to a hand surgeon. Uh, patient elected to take stitches, we discussed the risks and benefits of stitches as well as the others. I advised the patient to return if there were any signs of problems and to follow up with their primary care physician the next day and to contact us if the, if the symptoms continued. That, I think, would be a good note to work with. I don't know the medicine well enough to be able to say that one of those three is preferred if there is a distinct preference, but maybe it's more costly or it's a little bit more risky, I think that that can be put in there, such as I advise staples, although I did mention to her that there is a higher complication rate of that. She elected to choose uh, stitches despite my recommendation of staples. Stitches are acceptable, but I encouraged I, her to follow up with their doctor. I'm, I am the... Uh I'm the naysayer in this entire movement. <laughs> I think it's okay in family practice to sit and have a discussion about how we're going to look at your blood pressure. We've got a lot of time. We've got, we can try things over time. We can redo it again. We can put on different medications if one doesn't work. Mostly they came into the emergency department for our direction. And you know what? Yeah. I don't know an emergency doctor who's ever held the discussion that your child has now got decreased consciousness after that, that motorcycle injury. Here are the pros and cons of getting a CT of their head. I think that's a bunch of crap. You came to me for one thing, expertise and direction. Um, I, think, I think that shared decision-making works with a few things. But most of what we do in emergency medicine is not a shared decision-making process. And I think these people are looking for direction. 
And it's like when you go into the guy at the at the garage and he says your rotors need turning on your brakes. You think there's going to be shared decision making there? No, you're an idiot. Most people don't even know they have rotors in their brakes and they wouldn't know what a turning means. I, you know, I think this is one of those, you know, hippy dippy pinhead liberal uh, things we've taken off on here, which as far as I'm concerned, mostly waste doctors time. It is a bunch of shit. But that's a personal opinion. How do you feel about it? I largely agree with you, Greg. (laughs) Uh, From a defense attorney standpoint, (laughs) I think it's dangerous to let a patient control decision-making process on important medical issues. I think that a plaintiff's attorney would have a field day with that. That said, it sounds like there are certain areas such as this stitches, staples, glue on maybe a routine injury uh, where – you know, you do include the patient and you get some insights and you talk with them. But but no, they can't be the ones to decide whether or not they get the medicine or whether or not they get the, uh, you know, the, the, the cardiac enzymes tested or whether or not they have the, uh, the MRI. They can't make that decision. They've come for professional help. Again, the, the umbrella over all of this is to act reasonably. It's not reasonable to let a patient make a decision on very complex issues where the patient's health could be hanging in the balance. I think it is reasonable for them to be involved on more mundane decisions about, you know, whether they're going to have apple pie or cherry pie. Then maybe there are some some equal considerations. I just think you have to document them to protect yourself. And there are huge endpoint decisions in the elderly. For example, we could do two or three different things with that broken hip. But they're already a yeah. non-walker who's in bed. Yeah. Yeah. The, the surgical risks of PE and that sort of thing following the repair of the hip, those kinds of things with a family I think are perfectly reasonable. But yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't think you can extend this to every damn decision we make and still practice time efficient. And time efficiency does count because those waiting who you haven't seen for two hours – they're at risk too. Well, you've well, got you kind of an acute versus you got an acute versus chronic thing going on too. Well, here's another question that that kind of spins off of the the fact that patients are waiting. We did an interview, oh, maybe about six months ago, with a physician who wrote uh, an article in one of our uh, journals, in which one of the um, contentions was that if a, if a hospital chooses to inadequately staff its emergency department, and as a result of that, somebody becomes hurt, uh, or the physician is being asked to see way too many patients, and as a result of that, somebody gets gets to be hurt. Have you ever heard of that as being a cause of action against that hospital? Yes. Because I think that it is a perfectly reasonable cause of action, and one of all, there's many, many hospitals that are dangerously understaffed, in these hospitals, the physicians are usually employees of the hospital, and so it's really the hospital's call about do they have enough physicians, do they have enough PAs or nurses to, to support the volume that they have, do they have a contingency plan for when there's a surge of patients. And I can tell you, I think that if a member of my family was hurt because the staff was just totally overwhelmed on a routine basis, it wasn't because there was a hemophiliac bus accident. It's like this all the time. I think that's a great source of 
of going after the hospital because they've chosen to take a dangerous route. And as a result of that, look what happened. I, I, I often comment, because I do, I do defend hospitals too, plaintiff's attorneys view hospitals as flotillas of money. And hospitals are tough to defend all the way through a trial because at some point these types of vulnerabilities are exposed. There are nurses who will testify that they have too many patients and mm-hmm. they can't get to everybody. Uh, there's equipment issues. It can be a house of horrors. So, yes, the good plaintiff's attorney has their finger on that pulse. And frankly, it's dangerous. And, and it's not a good way to practice. I, I don't know what the rank and file doctor can do to change it, but they need to protect themselves with some very good notes and trying not to overextend themselves because they will be vulnerable too. I've heard of cases in which physician groups have sent letters to the hospital administration warning them in tactful terms of the Mm -hmm. necessity uh, to staff up better, giving them a heads up. Because I think, honestly, the emergency physician director of a department has an obligation to be in contact with the administration to say, listen, uh, based on my experience and and some of the things that are going on down here, you should know that I'm concerned that we have some safety issues. And I think that the administration is owed that by the ER medical director and the, and the nursing manager of the department. And that if you don't say anything to them and there's a problem as re- and you're attacked because you're st- staffing, I think, it, I think it's reasonable for the administration to say, why don't you tell us, you know, that there was a problem? Because I think in many cases, the administration is quite distant from what the heck is going on down in the uh, back of the hospital. Yeah, you're right. And obviously, there's political ramifications to sending that type of letter. Yes, I agree. It, depend, it depends <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. called loss of contract. <laughs> <laughs> it depends a lot on your on your standing and, and what kind of numbers you have and what kind of pull you have. But for the individual doctor, um, you know, I want him to be protected. I want him or her to to take the steps that they need to take to, to make sure they're not victimized by this assembly line setup that, that is, is a perfect storm for problems. So um, either sometimes a note in the chart, you know, contacted, you know, or, or, or you know, have asked for a CT scan, they're backed up not able to do this, you know, within the next four hours, have talked to the patient about being, uh, you know, transferred to a higher level of care or a different hospital so that that test can be performed sooner. I mean, something that protects the doctor, that he's not just sitting on his hands. Well, it's been great having you, Mark. I, it, My I pleasure. know why. Yeah, I know why our our good friend uh, Amal Matu is uh, taken by you. I hope that we can call upon you again to uh, maybe later on in the year appear on the program when we have some specific cases to discuss. But it's been a real joy having you here with us. It's been my pleasure. I would love to participate again. I, I like to give back to uh, to the to the good folks that are in the trenches. Well, you know, Rick, actually, do we have time for a for a wine of the month. Yeah, yeah, we do, Mark. Uh, this is uh, the, probably the most important part of the program, where Greg tells us about all of the uh, rot gut that he uh, basically is recommending here. That doesn't seem to be his style. I'm stunned. I, I, I cannot believe I get this kind of I take this kind of abuse, but. As a little historical note, uh, the grapevines which exist on Sicily 
were essentially the grapevines which uh, existed on Sicily at the time of the Roman Empire. Okay, they have here we because go. Of, uh, no, Rick, <laughs> be quiet. Now. Uh, there, because it's a nice island, a lot of those diseases which affected both France and the rest of the wine growing areas of Europe, it was quite protected. And if you want to taste a terrific wine, there is one, a Sicilian wine called Valenti, the 2009 Puritani. And it's, uh, it's just a fantastic wine. It's very rustic. It's the kind you have with pasta. And you are drinking a bit of history. It goes back to the days of the Caesars. So if you want to get a bottle... You dial the uh, you dial Crawford Superior Wines nine zero eight two seven six eight eight two six and they will supply you with the Valenti two thousand nine Puritane. Hey, listen, what are you getting? Twenty percent of every sale that you just generated there. I, I, I get nothing. I get nothing. But when you they leave, they leave my fingers, they leave my fingers in place. My thumbs are not broken. You know, we all yeah, we all I, get our own ways. I did want to mention that Sicily was the home of the mafia, but I but I won't say that. You know, when you said wine of the month, I thought you meant W H I N E. I thought Greg was going to rip on somebody. So uh, no, no, no. Actually, we're uh, quite good at whining in, uh, that that way as well. Yeah, the rest of the program is whining. This oh, is an actual go. wine you drink. But there, there you, you go, and uh, that's that's the issue for the month of May. So this is Greg saying so long. Uh, yeah, this is Rick, and I wanted again to say, Mark, thank you very much. We we called on absolutely short notice. We called you one day, and the next day we're, we're recording, which I think was really pretty uh, unusual. We, we we would very much like to have you back. I, I, I must tell you, I get a very sincere feeling from you that your, your motivations to help uh, physicians is very, very intense. We do have a few... Uh, other cases that we would love to have your input on. But for now, we're running out of time, so I wanted to say thank you very much as well. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 